Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a vital topic, and of course it's not a topic that just relates to Native American communities, but it is really something that impacts every single one of us who's tuning in today. It has to do with a safe blood supply. may sound like a topic that, well, you don't hear that much about on talk radio, well, we've got a great show lined up for you. Dr. John Armitage is with me. John, it is great to have you as my guest. Thanks for having me on, David. John, you have uh, got some pretty deep roots in the, uh, well, the blood donation community. I guess that's what a layperson would say. I mean, there's other terminology that we might use as professionals. But tell us a little bit about, first of all, who you are. Yeah, well, I am a president and CEO of the Oklahoma Blood Institute, which is also the Arkansas Blood Institute and Texas Blood Institute. And uh, um, we're the sixth largest blood collector in the country. Um, there are about 50 independent organizations uh, that collect blood around the country. So uh, we're one of the, the larger ones. Uh, we collect about 300,000 uh, red cell units a year and about 60,000 platelet uh, donations. So uh, we serve a lot of folks and we get to see a lot of wonderful donors and a lot of wonderful organizations supporting the mission of saving lives through uh, irreplaceable uh, medical uh, drug, really. Um, blood is a prescription drug um, and it's life saving and it's uh, life improving. Uh, gives good days to people who need good days. Now, when I was in medical school and residency, no one, when we were, they were talking about career paths, no one said, you know, one day you can run a blood bank. So for some folks who are wondering just how someone gets on that trajectory, because you're actually a physician, right? I am. I'm a pathologist, a clinical pathologist, uh, specializing in laboratory medicine and making sure that the results you get. Uh, I know we're all familiar with COVID testing now and home testing and false positives. Well, there's a whole science to making good tests and getting good results from those tests. And uh, that's really what I specialized in. And uh, happily for me, blood banking is part of that. In the hospital, the blood bank is a laboratory. You make sure that the blood units are, are brought into the hospital and then cross-matched or uh, matched uh, specifically for the patient uh, safety measures. Um, so uh, I got involved through uh, the hospital blood bank, and then I realized there was this wonderful group of people out there getting the blood to the hospital. I'm like, uh, that sounds fascinating. And it, it's altruism. It's uh, kind of manufacturing made in America uh, blood products. And uh, also it's uh, science. And we're doing a lot of cutting edge work with cell therapy and uh, really taking what we've been doing with blood cells and trying to now do that with uh, white blood cells that are used for cancer vaccines and regenerative medicine. So it's a, a wonderful stepping stone into a frontier of uh, future treatments and very exciting for me. Uh, I like the science, but I, I also love the people connection. It's one of the few places in medicine where there's an open door for uh, the lay public to be absolutely essential uh, in healthcare, whether that's cancer therapy or labor and delivery where the mom uh, needs blood units because she's hemorrhaging. 
uh, just a, an amazing contact point for the average person to be uh, really medically a, a hero and in the operating room with part of themselves saving lives. Well, Dr. Armitage, you've already touched on this quite a bit, but it's one of the questions that people often ask. They say, well, why do they keep asking for blood? I mean, how much blood do they need? Can you give us not only an idea of the range of things, I mean, you've alluded to that already, but when we talk about blood, maybe in a, a cancer treatment uh, setting or in a transfusion setting, how many units are we talking? I mean, how many people actually need to be, you know, lining up to donate to help in some of these vital situations? Yeah, that's uh, it, uh, every person's different, different medical conditions. It, it's hard to make blanket statements, but as a 10,000 foot view, um, there are 12 million units annually that are donated, uh, close to 13. Um, and that's the overall need. But then you get down to the real human level, which is a patient and uh, a patient may need as few as one unit or for a bad hemorrhage, a car accident could go over 100. A liver transplant uh, with complications can go over 100 units. And one of the amazing things when we have survivors come and talk to some of our donor events and some of our celebrations and, and you see somebody there who's used 60 units of blood in a, a car accident and you're like, well, you basically lost your blood volume five times over, but there were amazing heroes who, while you were bleeding out and while they were fixing all those torn arteries and veins and getting you back together, uh, there was enough blood on the shelf to to keep you going, keep the, the leaky plumbing all uh, still functioning. Uh, and you're a survivor. And what a miracle that is. Um, the, you know, it's an everyday miracle. People don't think of uh, blood transfusion very often because it's been around for 80 years. But it's it's an everyday miracle that you can give essentially a tissue transplant. The, the cells from my body can be given to somebody else and uh, do their job for the, you know, the next few months, help that person recover. And uh, it's it's amazing to me that there are i'm a bit of a vampire so i'll say there are only eight basic flavors but uh there are eight basic types and for us to be able to mix and match and help each other on such an easy set of you know eight basic um building blocks you know i think we were meant to share it you know it, it's easy to get from a vein it, you've got extra mother nature knows that you might have a bleeding episode so you've got a couple of extra pints to get you through you can share some of those with somebody else we can refrigerate them move them around um it's just a remarkable story of how our humanity can absolutely be transported from us to the scene of an accident or the scene of a surgery scene of labor and delivery whatever that is um I think there are bigger forces at work in this, and I'm just delighted to be part of it. And I'm delighted to allow donors and sponsor groups to be part of it. What a wonderful mission to be a part of. What, what did you do today, Dad? Well, I went out and I gave part of myself to save uh, the life of somebody I'll never meet, but I made a difference. Um, you know, the, the wonderful thing is when we collect you know, blood, you can guarantee we're doing everything possible to get that into a patient. There's no point to collect it. It's not right for the donor. It's not right for us to collect it and not use it. So, uh, you know, we're a very efficient way to give, not only a, a unique way to give. This is such a tremendous storyline, really. And I appreciate uh, you sharing, John, you know, just from your kind of bird's eye view as a, as a director, as a CEO of a, of a blood bank. I will tell you that one of the exciting things is that this show is especially heard by Native American communities. Many reservations actually air this program, but it also goes out on other radio channels. 
you have had a really great relationship working in really the heart of Indian country. You're based there in Oklahoma. Tell us a little bit about that partnership with Native American nations. Yeah, the tribes here are incredibly supportive of the blood mission um, in the town of Ada. Uh, the Chickasaw Nation helped build uh, one of our facilities, gave funding for that. Um, the casinos, uh, a lot of people think, oh, casinos are all about fun and excitement, entertainment. Uh, when I look at a casino, I look at a place that uh, is standing up for the community with blood drives because our casinos do an amazing job around the calendar. But when we have a snowstorm or an ice storm around here, everything shuts down. We're not used to dealing with much bad weather. But the casinos will be the first to open up. Their their parking lots are clear, cleared out. People uh, want to get to those facilities. Uh, maybe they got some downtime from their work. Maybe they just want to deal with something other than the kids at home from school. Um, they come out and they give. And uh, it's just a it's a celebration. Um, when I think of the casinos, not only are they economic development, and uh, they do a lot of great things at that level, but they're pillars for the blood supply. So yay for them. And uh, we're just, we couldn't be more appreciative of uh, a group that really knows what it means to take care of their loved ones. I, I think that's part of the, the tribal notion of you're a team, right? And this just extends that team concept to blood is a team sport. You know, if you don't have people given, <laughs> there's, there's not a good outcome for anybody. Um, and so I think maybe it's a, a natural kind of uh, communal uh, sense of giving and, and honoring um, a neighbor by caring enough about them to make sure that they don't go short of blood. This is just great, John. I know one of the things I'm hearing a lot about, and we're really anxious to see what it's like for those of you that are really handling and trying to manage the blood supply. We're hearing a lot about COVID-19 and how that's impacted the blood supply. Is this a bunch of hype? Is it real? Can you tell us what's going on there? Uh, COVID-19, we've been through about three, I guess Omicron was about the third surge here. And uh, each surge, uh, I guess, throws you different uh, variations on a theme, but it has been difficult. Um, I think at the beginning, a lot of people weren't coming out. Um, they were very concerned for their health and the transmissibility. Um, the average, you know, we weren't in schools. Schools are usually very strong for us uh, in terms of uh, holding drives and um, a lot of young people. If you ever want to feel great about young people in America, to come to a high school blood drive because, you know, they, they like the shirts and the cookies and getting out of class. But at the end of the day, they're stepping forward into the unknown to do something uh, heroic, you know, uh, altruistic. Uh, so we lost a lot of blood drives. A lot of businesses closed down uh, temporarily or they were working from home. Um, we're still rebounding from that. The average drive size for us is smaller. That means we have to have more blood drives. That's more effort for us to schedule, get them set up, um, that sort of thing. So I would say um, COVID has turned us into um, a faster organization, um, tempo-wise, which is wearing on people. We're, we're two years in. We're essential workers. Uh, I'm really proud of our team. Uh, when it was uh, our duty to step up and make sure that uh, patients didn't go without during the, the two years of the pandemic, we were always there. The blood supply stayed uh, strong. It has its dips. It has its ups and downs. But fundamentally, 
uh, we've been able to meet that need with a lot of extra hustle and, and a lot of new friends, uh, people who hadn't given before, maybe heard more about us on the, the media. And maybe that inspired a few people to step up. One of the amazing things to me, I, I say amazing a lot about my job, but uh, to me, uh, talk about a, a gift that is incredibly inclusive. The fact that any one unit from any donor is exactly the same as any other unit, you know, given the same blood type, it's an incredible affirmation that I, we don't care what your background is, we don't care what your income is, we don't care your gender, none of that matters to the person getting the blood. And it, it's amazing, again, to say uh, in COVID, it felt sort of the same way. You know, we were all going through something new and horrible, and um, we were all kind of leveled down to this new reality. And blood came through as, uh, you know, kind of one of the pillars that hopefully everybody uh, relied on and, and remembered. And so we're very grateful to our donors and sponsors who have stuck with us, because uh, a lot of people who could have said no didn't. And uh, we appreciate that. So, John, COVID-19 has been a challenge. Are there other current and ongoing challenges to the blood supply? Yeah, I think um, we're having to reinforce our messaging in different ways. I, I think for a long time, there was a lot of uh, cultural osmosis around doing the right thing, um, getting out and helping a neighbor, um, you know, kind of, in our case, a frontier spirit, you know, and our state's only a little over 100 years old. So people can remember when there weren't wasn't a lot of infrastructure, there weren't a lot of safety nets. Uh, so I think uh, right now we have to reinvent the way we connect to people. We're really proud. We came up with an app called Thank the Donor which allows a patient or a family member to send a, an anonymous thank you to the person who gave the unit that's hanging in their hospital room uh, with a picture or a video if they care to include that. Um, so that brings that emotional connection. And we've got the most amazing stories. We have uh, you know thousands of folks who've shared that. And it gives us the pictures and it gives us a way to, to make our message uh, a little bit more like social media. People are used to the authentic voice the personal voice coming through, and now we've got a pipeline. That's part of the reinvention. We didn't need that maybe 15 years ago, but we need it now in a social media world. We're gamifying what we're doing. Uh, we're trying to make uh, uh, quizzes around uh, in infotainment, as they call it, to try and engage people. Um, so uh, I think um, all nonprofits in this era of reinventing after COVID, when maybe people have learned to say no to a lot of things, you know, no is not always a good <laughs> habit to get into, uh, especially when you're talking about good causes and altruism. So we have to figure out ways to encourage people back and, um, you know, get them engaged and, and speak the language they're speaking. So gamification, uh, you know, uh, social media, these are all things, if they're making sense in the commercial world, they make sense to us. This is just uh, such great information, Dr. Armitage. We're going to have to step away. We've got a, just a few important messages that we're going to sneak in here, but then we're going to come back because we've got a lot more great information about blood, the blood supply, how it can make a difference for you, and how you can make a difference. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be back with a lot more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. 
We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm talking with Dr. John Armitage. He is the CEO of the Oklahoma Blood Institute. It is a an institution that actually has uh, far-reaching connections in neighboring states, also operating as the Texas Blood Institute and the Arkansas Blood Institute. Uh, am I saying that correct, John, are you, or are there actually separate kind of entities that uh, that fly those banners, if you will? Uh, we roll up to one uh, board of directors. We do serve the local hospitals, so uh, we want to emphasize the community feel in Arkansas and Texas and Oklahoma. So we uh, we brand uh, three different brands, but uh, we're one company, and I think that gives us power. We've got about a thousand employees, and uh, we are able to do some stuff at scale, uh, which I think helps us innovate and helps us uh, hopefully provide services that we might not be able to do if we were uh, much smaller. Well, I had the privilege of living in Oklahoma for uh, for over a decade down in uh, South Central Oklahoma there in Ardmore area. And I was a blood donor with the Oklahoma Blood Institute. And I'm really starting to feel like I missed out because the last time I donated blood uh, in this part of the country, nobody enrolled me in thank the donor. I mean, this sounds really exciting. How long have you been doing this? Uh, well, um, that's about five years old. Um, you know, the nice thing is uh, you're automatically enrolled as a donor. If if a patient or a family member uh, of somebody getting a transfusion sends a message, 
If we have your email, we'll email you. And one of our staff members loves the program so much that if we get the electronic message with a photo or maybe it's just a text uh, saying thank you, uh, she makes sure that we snail mail it to you um, if if we don't have your email. So uh, as a donor, we've found that uh, there's an amazing um, benefit if you get a message from your uh, actual unit being uh, thanked. But we also found that uh, most people love the messages because they they can put themselves in the, it might be me next time, or I've probably helped somebody just like that. So uh, there's a nice sense of uh, community and not proprietary uh, nature. And that was a surprise to me when we developed it. I thought, oh, we're going to need to get about 5% of our units thanked in order for this to make any kind of impact. And it turned out we only needed about 10 messages a month when we were starting and the content was so uh, universally uh, appreciated. Uh, and we've started to figure out different ways. I send messages out to our staff, encouraging them around working here and what we do for our mission. We use it for job recruitment. If you want to explain to somebody what it means to work in a blood center, what better way than to tell the story of a, you know, a cancer survivor who, who's really grateful units were there or um, you know, a family member whose uh, grandfather just got through uh, heart surgery. So uh, again, it's gratitude. Um, uh, we have another app that's a, a spinoff uh, of this called Share Thanks because we realize that gratitude um, is an amazing uh, tool. It's kind of like the currency uh, that drives uh, goodness and altruism. And you know, so when you get a thank you, it's this wonderfully self-generating next um, good deed. Is the seeds are being planted through that thank you? So uh, to me, it's amazing. We don't have a symbol for thank you. It's so important, yet you can't tell me what the, you know, if I want to send a thank you message right now and I look around, there's no symbol that would direct me to do that. And uh, again, uh, we're deep into the gratitude thing and thank the donor has been a wonderful expression. There are uh, about 20 other blood centers licensing the the tool from us so that we can pay for the upgrades and uh, do all that kind of stuff. So um, again, uh, if anybody's out there, you know, your mom got it right. Thank you is a magic word. And uh, use it as much as you can, and good things will come when you do. Um, And we're finding that in the blood world. Well, I try to be a quick learner, John, so I want to thank you right now for joining us. But usually (laughs) I I save that to the end. I don't want you to think you can leave, okay? (laughs) All right. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about something really that uh, I think should be on a lot of people's minds as they're listening to us dialogue, and that is how can they share in this privilege of being able to give back. Let's say someone has not donated in a long time. Maybe they've never donated. They're living in Oklahoma or Arkansas or Texas. I mean, let's just speak first to to those in your service area. How does someone donate? Well, uh, for us, uh, we're obi.org or txbi.org or uh, abi.org. Um, but um, I would say, um, you know, certainly uh, aabb.org has a, a zip code. Uh, finder you can plug in uh, wherever you are in the country and it'll give you uh, nearby locations to give um so um you know that's one way uh, a google search but uh a lot of times you'll see ads i mean if you start noticing them um you know they're all over the place uh you know whether they're uh posters that say uh, blood drive today or or whatever it is then the wonderful thing is um blood donations in a lot of locations it's a kind of a universal activity um, so there, there are many uh, contact points. Um, so, and I would say um, anybody out there in good health, you know, you have to be a, a minimum of 16 years old, um, but there's no upper 
uh, age limit if you're healthy. Um, most of the medications people think, oh, well, I've got high blood pressure or, you know, I've got diabetes. Um, those are not uh, exclusions. We take a lot of folks who are on medications uh, that fortunately they have no effect on the recipient and the blood is so valuable that uh, it all gets diluted out except for the good stuff. <laughs> so um, uh, again, um, the barriers hopefully are low. Uh, good health uh, is a, a very broad definition, I would say, uh, you know, uh, um, a lot of people think, oh, I've got thyroid uh, issues. You know, those are not exclusions. There are very few exclusions. Uh, for example, if you've had leukemia, uh, there's a worry about, well, would, would the leukemia come back and potentially cancerous cells from the blood be transfused? There's never been a documented case of transfusion transmitted uh, blood cancer, but those are one of the exclusions. There's a theoretical, so we want to protect. Uh, but nearly everybody uh, uh, can give if you're over the age limits. And, uh, you know, there, there are a few um, things like travel restrictions, but actually in COVID, a lot of the year-long travel restrictions were dropped to three months. I think it's a, a testament to the FDA got nimble. They realized that some of the um, the older rules could be skinnied up a little bit. Um, and so uh, with the testing we have now, somebody's not going to be undetected at three months out from an exposure to hepatitis C or uh, hepatitis B. So that what we call the window period where you're infected, but it's hard to detect your infection, that's down to days and maybe a couple of weeks in some cases. But uh, certainly skinnying down the exclusion to three months for some of the risk travel or, or behavior. Years, uh, made a lot of sense. It, it was scientifically relevant. And thankfully, you know, in the crisis of COVID, that's a silver lining, you know, some rationalization around some of the old stodgy rules that I honestly, I thought would never change. And, uh, you know, I won't say yay for COVID, but uh, it was a silver lining. Uh, and hopefully we get to keep that improvement. As physicians, one of the conditions that we're often exposed to, I'm an internal medicine specialist, is uh, hemochromatosis. And a lot of folks, lay folks, they, they've never heard of it, but some of the data I've seen, as many as you know, one in 10 or, or even more people are carrying the, the gene for that condition. Can you tell us a little bit about hemochromatosis and how it impacts the blood supply? Yeah, hemochromatosis is a problem with your iron metabolism. Your body loves iron too much and doesn't want to get rid of it. <laughs> and as a result, uh, it stimulates um, uh, red cell production. So you end up with kind of thick and sludgy blood. You can think of any uh, fluid. You put too much coffee in the coffee and it's not right. You put too many blood cells in your uh, blood pipeline and, and it sludges up and it, it causes problems. Iron also gets deposited in the heart and in uh, other tissues, uh, pancreas, and causes a lot of problems. So one of the ways that you can help uh, patients with hemochromatosis is good old fashioned bloodletting. You know, uh, you look back to medieval medicine and they had leeches and they had bloodletting. Well, this is actually a medieval practice that, uh, is, you know, we don't use leeches, thankfully, but uh, drawing off the blood takes out the iron. And uh, done consistently over time, that person can manage their iron overload and the complications can be averted by uh, removing some of the red blood cells. And, and we love it because if the donor otherwise qualifies as a blood donor, if they pass all the risk, behavioral and uh, other medical history risks, then we can use that unit. Um, we've got an, a variance from the FDA for that. Um, most blood centers do. So it's sort of taking that healing process uh, for the, the patient and turning, again, it's a silver lining kind of story uh, where that blood can then go do something wonderful for another patient who has the exact opposite problem, not enough blood. Uh, so kind of a trade-off there. 
This is a great story because I've been around long enough that I can remember having, I'm thinking of a specific patient. I said, well, you know, why don't you just go to the blood center and donate blood? And they said, well, they won't take my blood because I've got hemochromatosis. They want me to go down to another place and charge me to take my blood and throw it away. So it seems like, uh, is this one of these areas where we've made some progress over the years? I would have to say, again, the regulator opened up this window. For a long time, there's this weird concept of a, a medical incentive, uh, the idea that something so valuable might cause a person to not tell the truth about their risk behaviors in order to achieve the medical benefit that they know that they need. So for a long time, med- the medical incentive uh, was thought to be too high for hemochromatosis. And uh, fortunately, the, the logic prevailed. Um, people are going to be uh, truthful, and uh, we collect free anybody with hemochromatosis. If they aren't eligible as blood donors, uh, we discard those units um, that they can't be used. Uh, But we found the sweet spot because we help our blood supply. We cover the cost of all those bags of blood we draw and the time it takes to draw them and throw them out. So it's kind of a a compensating um, uh, operational um, system, which uh, we feel it's awesome. We get to do uh, free medical care and help patients at the same time. Win-win. This is an exciting story. We've got a lot more to go. I know that uh, you've been gracious, John, to carve out a significant portion of your time. We're going to take advantage of that in our next segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. Got a lot more important stuff coming up, including maybe some questions you've been wondering about whether you should be a donor or about some of the risks, some of the other concerns that you might have. We've got it all coming up in our next segment on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Stay tuned. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's samhsa.gov support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. 
I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Dr. John Armitage. John heads up the Oklahoma Blood Institute. He also heads up the Arkansas Blood Institute and the Texas Blood Institute. So if you've been with us from the beginning of the show, you realize that those organizations are all connected. Uh, sounds like quite seamlessly, John. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I think the communities are very similar. So, uh, you know, uh, it, and the communities are really um, neighbor help neighbor kind of places. Uh, I've been on the, the coasts and I think those are busier places and places where people are more transient. So uh, the Midwest in the United States is known as the bloodbasket uh, for those uh, vampires out there, because much like the breadbasket, it's a place of plenty. Uh, and it um, has the generosity uh, to meet its own needs. And uh, some of those big cities uh, can't always do that. So it's shared resource when, when it's possible to share, but still protect the local uh, community. John, I'm going to share with you a little bit uh, about my background. You and I have talked off air a little bit about this, but oh, probably five, six years ago, I collaborated with another physician and a nurse practitioner, and we came out with a book called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. So we were looking at simple things people could do to control their blood pressure. And as we're going through all the literature, we came across some data from Europe where they found that regular blood donors, people who had donated four times a year, had significantly lower blood pressures than individuals who were non-donors. And, of course, there was a lot of, you know, dialogue, you know, in the medical community about, you know, what might be doing this, etc. Then a few years later, I came out with a book called The Methuselah Factor, where I was looking at optimizing circulatory health and how that impacts health. And I was uh, doing a lot of lectures relating to these two books. I was uh, in the state of Michigan working with a community organizer, and I said, you know, we're talking about blood donation in this uh, Methuselah Factor book, making the connection with blood pressure, some other things that have been suggested. And I said, uh, why don't we see if the local uh, blood bank is interested in kind of collaborating with us? And they were. And we did just a small pilot study just looking at whether a single lecture talking about some of the relationship of being a blood donor in connection with some of these chronic diseases made any impact. And we were just really blown away, honestly, to see how many people got excited about donating blood, many of them who'd never donated. They actually made appointments, they followed through, and we had a way to track that because we said, hey, you donate the blood, we'll give you a free copy of my book. And so they were following up with them in their community. Well, anyway, as I reached out to some different blood organizations, a lot of them just kind of gave me the uh, the cold shoulder. I thought, well, here's you know, here's something easy. I, I often speak around the country. You know, people are either paying me to come out or it's a book tour or something like that. I say, well, you know, if you guys want to come out and register people, and I was just not getting a lot of interest. And so I was looking in the literature, and I start seeing this argument. You know, people are saying, well, if you give too much incentive for blood donors, they're, they're going to lie. You know, they're not going to, you know, they're going to be doing high risk behaviors. It's going to compromise the safety of the blood supply. 
it seems like you folks there in Oklahoma and Arkansas and Texas, seems like you're figuring some of this out so that people can, well, they can come and donate blood if they think it's going to be good for their health. And you found some ways to still safeguard the blood supply. Kind of walk us through that just a little bit more, John, if you would. Well, the blood supply uh, that's been, uh, the safety measures have been described as an onion. Um, and the, the onion starts with a lot of people know you have to be um, pretty healthy to, to come in. You know, uh, our first question is, are you feeling well today? And, and then it comes down to the questions we ask, um, you know, about lifestyle and, and risk factors, medical health. And then it comes down to um, the testing we do. We do a physical the day you you come in and donate. We, we make sure that you're not anemic because the last thing you want, if you're anemic is somebody to draw off some more blood. Um, so we do a blood pressure in our instance. Uh, we then take the test tubes that we collect while you're donating and we do a, a testing level of, uh, safety. Um, so the, um, the whole process, uh, and then afterwards, if you think of something you uh, is risky or or you develop, uh, you know, uh, symptoms after donating, there's a callback. So that's another level of the onion. So there are a lot of protections in place, and we have the safest blood supply we've ever had, which is uh, great news for everybody, I would say. But for us, the ability to draw people in, we have to give reasons why people want to donate. And if, you know, medical and, and health concerns are something that uh, everybody uh, has, that's one of the reasons the nightly news has health segments and the local news. And so the idea that you're not going to give some sort of medical benefit because it's somehow different than the t-shirt that we give as a recognition item, to me, that's weird because you want to find all the alignments to the reason to say yes, that you can, whether that's, uh, you know, in some cases, it's a spiritual alignment. In some cases, it's a, a family alignment um, and, and a medical connection to, uh, you know, some condition, maybe it's cancer. So uh, to me, the idea that you're going to help your own health, absolutely. Why, why wouldn't you talk about that? And there's been a lot of discussion, not only with blood pressure, uh, but with heart disease, the thought that um, iron is an oxidant. Um, it, I don't want to get into too much chemistry for your audience here. It might create a post-traumatic stress disorder for some folks. But uh, I, when you think of an act, antioxidant that's sold on TV, you know, this kind of juice has antioxidant uh, value. Well, because iron is an oxidant, removing it is an antioxidant. Um, and so there's been uh, some research that says, well, there's a benefit there. And I think our industry has been uh, very slow to engage with that as a benefit that says, hey, you know, uh, if we're doing some good for the donor, that all the better, you know, let, let's understand what that is. Um, so the fact that blood pressure is affected by donation isn't entirely surprising, because when I mentioned the hemochromatosis sludginess of the blood, you can get to points where we are called into the hospital, our nurses are called to the hospital to draw a unit of blood because somebody's hematocrit is in the 60s. And that's a risk for stroke because of the sludginess. And it's a risk for heart attack. And that right there tells you the whole rheology or flow dynamics of the blood systems compromised because there's too much blood there, there too many blood cells. And so, uh, again, it, it seems like we need to do more to understand uh, the benefits of donation. Uh, you know, and I would argue that there are even psychic benefits. When you talk about lowering blood pressure, you know, you if you've ever given blood and you walk out, uh, you know, and have been to a great blood drive where there's music and, you know, you see your friends donating and, you know, their decorations and great food, that puts you in a mind space that, that can't be matched. That's like a 
you know, a, a spiritual moment that I'm sure translates to blood pressure. Your body's like feeling great because your mind's feeling great. Um, and your blood vessels are part of that. So uh, again, I, I think we need to do more uh, to research the, the value of donation and, and the long-term health benefits um, or risk. If, if the risk, let's lay those out on the table, you know, and make sure we understand those too. I don't believe there are. Uh, I haven't seen convincing studies that say that uh, we're at risk for doing harm to folks, but, uh, you know, I think the whole field needs to be a lot more diligent about follow-up studies and uh, some of the, the the science. No, this is really an exciting topic to me. I've been uh, I've been interested in this for quite a while, and uh, so I've got boards in internal medicine, but also in preventive medicine. And so, just looking at preventing some of these chronic diseases, and you know, giving people different options, things they can do, things that they can take ownership for. And like you mentioned, John, it really is pretty sobering when you look at some of the data with, you know, with iron storage and and disease risk. You know, you mentioned heart disease. Some of that data, I was shocked when I first saw it back in the 90s. Some researchers in Finland started looking at these relationships, and they looked at something called ferritin, you know, this storage form of iron, and it was like a linear relationship. The, the more iron storage they had, the more likely people were to have heart attacks, so, yeah, these connections. And then, you know, we're now seeing some of the same dialogue about neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. You know, with again, it's this whole story with pro-oxidants. So, yeah, we've, uh, after the show, we, we probably should talk about some of the things that, uh, you know, ways we could interface. And we're doing that, actually, just for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, John and I got connected because I'm doing some lectures in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, coming up in uh, mid-February. And we're going to be offering people opportunities to learn about how to improve their health and showing how blood donation can be part of that equation. So uh, check in the information about this video, and you can perhaps join us there if you're listening in the Little Rock area. Well, John, I want to come back to a question that, uh, well, I've done a fair amount of work uh, lecturing and things and worked with people in in Europe. I was in uh, England doing some lectures uh, just before COVID came down. And um, I know there's still a lot of dialogue about something that really sent, uh, well, fears throughout the UK and throughout the world with the so-called mad cow disease and the variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. So for those who are kind of already raising their eyebrows or looking a bit cross-eyed, throwing out some medical terms, can you kind of help us about why this was such a concern in the uh, blood donation community? Yeah, um, mad cow disease or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is a very unusual neurologic condition. It's um, actually uh, thought to be um, an infectious protein, which is something, you, you know, you probably never heard of because it's so uh, rare and the, the concept is so unusual even in uh, medical science. Uh, but the real risk was, were these unusual proteins, which are transmissible, uh, were they entering the blood supply? And what happened in the UK in the um, 80s, uh, they changed the way that they fed their cattle. And they started allowing a lot more of the meat scraps uh, to include brain um, that was not treated. That They had an industrial accident. They changed the way they uh, essentially treated 
uh, this protein supplement, and it allowed these proteins to get through a process that had in the past been neutralized. So it infected their food supply, it infected their cattle, and it infected people. And uh, back in the day, this was going to be the next pandemic. It was going to be uh, a tsunami of neurologic, a terrible condition. It's uh, neurodegenerative. It causes, it's a bad thing. It can be fatal in most cases. So the thought was we had to protect the blood supply. So a lot of rules were put in place to uh, say that if you lived in the United Kingdom at the time when they had this meat processing uh, problem, you couldn't donate. And it comes to find out we're about 20 plus years out from the height of this uh, worry. We're more than 20 years. And uh, the n- world's net cases of human mad cow disease is probably in the 300s, low 300s. So um, what th- was thought to be a tsunami was a ripple, a terrible disease for those who got it. But we took drastic measures uh, on the safety of the blood supply, uh, excluded a lot of wonderful donors and said, hey, uh, maybe this is too risky. Fortunately, we started to dial those back um, just with uh, right before the pandemic, actually, the federal government said, well, we're going to start to uh, relax some of the prohibitions against people who were in Europe. That was also included because British beef got into Europe as well. So they started to relax that. We've got donors who've come back to us. We're very grateful for that. But uh, if you're worried about mad cow still, I would say uh, that train has uh, already left the station. You're probably good now. Fortunately, it doesn't seem to be a major risk to the blood supply. And hopefully we can get all those donors back uh, with a, a full all clear at some point. But it's hard to get people to, once you got a good regulation, uh, the people who made that uh, regulation are, are loath to get rid of it because they want to keep as safe as supply as possible. Well, this is exciting. So I hope you're getting a message. Maybe you've been, uh, well, told, you know, we can't take your blood today. That doesn't mean you can't be a donor tomorrow. So it's an important message. We've got some other really important things that I want to make sure that you hear. Hopefully you can stay by. Dr. Armitage, I believe you're able to stay by for our final segment. Yep, that'd be great. We will plan to do that. So don't go away. Dr. David DeRose with Dr. John Armitage. Our last segment, some important things that you don't want to miss for you, your community, and especially those you love most. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. 
A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Well, you're back with our final segment in today's edition of the broadcast, and you've been hearing multiple times how you can contact us, but how about how you can contact, especially if you're in Oklahoma, Arkansas, or Texas, how can you get a hold of somebody with uh, Dr. Armitage's team? John, um, how does someone do that? Uh, they may just be a radio listener. They don't have Internet access. Is there a phone number they can use? Yeah, our uh, toll-free number is one 340 Eight seven seven seven. A lot of good lucky sevens in there. Okay, let me try this. Make sure I'm getting it. One eight seven seven. Then what have we got? Three four zero, and then eight seven seven seven. Okay, well that's pretty easy. Eight seven seven three four zero eight seven seven seven. Yep, and uh, we've got folks who will make an appointment, tell you where we're having blood drives, and uh, get you hooked up to uh, one of the most amazing things you can do in an hour. Great, great. We've been speaking about some of the health benefits of, of blood donation. We've spoken about some of those uh, altruistic benefits. I was sharing with you uh, a little bit from my book, uh, The Methuselah Factor. Uh, we've got, it's, it's a comprehensive, it's a 30-day program where we're teaching people simple things they can do to improve their overall health, improve their blood fluidity. And we do talk about altruism and acts of kindness. And just for the record, for the benefit of my listeners, as well as uh, for you, John, we have uh, a list of different things you can do that take uh, acts of kindness that take varying amounts of time. We say, here's one, a few hours, you can donate blood. Now, I know the actual donation doesn't take a few hours, but getting there and, you know, getting the mini physical and all, et cetera. And then we have, uh, here's one, something that if, if you can commit a few weeks, you could actually help coordinate a blood drive. So uh, anyway, we're uh, we're definitely excited about what you're doing. And I've I've just been fascinated on this show and in the breaks we've had because you have a pool of regular donors there in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas. What's the number of, of folks that are actually donating through your establishments? Well, any one year we see about 200,000 plus, uh, just a little bit over 200,000. But a lot of those are high schoolers. They may give while they're in high school and then they don't. So the number of people who've ever given with us is well over half a million in our computerized records. And pre-computer, it probably adds, uh, you know, maybe another 100,000 or so uh, to that. So uh, basically hundreds of thousands of people. It's an affirmation. If you think about where is America today, come out and visit a blood drive. If you want to feel good, 
you know, come to one of our boots and badges drives, which is where the police officers challenge the uh, firefighters. And, you know, you're talking about great people doing the right thing and in their lives, but also by giving blood. We're just, uh, I don't know, we're an emotional refuge in COVID. You, you know, want to see people who still care, still still are doing the right thing. It's just, uh, it's fellowship. A lot of good things you can do online these days. You can write your check. You can do that. You can't give blood alone. You cannot sit in your living room and collect a unit and mail it to us because uh, we're not going to use it. You got to come out and find other good hearted people who've set up a blood drive, love our blood drive coordinators because it's a, a wonderfully packaged team activity for your business, for your church, for your synagogue, whatever it is. It's fellowship. It's come out and see good at work uh, and be part of it. So, John, here's the other interesting angle, because as a preventive medicine specialist, one of the things that we've been challenged by and you know, having written a book on high blood pressure, I can't tell you how many people are totally oblivious to the fact that they have high blood pressure. And the data is staggering. I mean, I've lectured on this topic internationally, and so I've had to dive into the world literature. World Health Organization, about a decade ago, published data on most every country on the planet. And we're talking 30 to 50% of the adult population across the board, across the world with hypertension. And so many of these people aren't even aware of it. I look at you folks, when you're doing a blood drive, or even if someone's going into one of your offices, you're kind of on the front lines because some of these folks, they feel fine. They're not going in to see the doctor. Tell us, do you actually find people as you do the, I like to call it a mini physical, maybe you have a different term for it, but when you evaluate people for blood donation, are you picking up on some of these conditions? Absolutely. I think um, mini physical is a great term. Uh, we're really proud of a, a software. It was our first venture into software. We now have six software engineers who are uh, busy trying to make us uh, uh, more electronically relevant. But our first program was called Donor Care Connection. And what we realized is we have longitudinal data. Uh, we know your blood pressure. Uh, many times you come in, a lot of our donors are, are frequent flyers. They come back to us over and over again, thankfully. But we're able to scan for high values three in a row. Uh, one blood pressure reading does not necessarily mean a diagnosis. Uh, so we set the program to scan for three highs in a row. And at that point, we will contact uh, through a letter that's generated uh, that says, here are your three values by your zip code. We'll tell you where there's a practice that's accepting patients uh, close to you, hopefully. And then um, we follow it up with a phone call. So we have two different touch points. We have a lot of callers who are usually on the phone uh, asking for folks to come in and donate, but we assign a few of them this kind of follow-up. Hey, let this person know that they have three high blood pressures or three high cholesterols. We do the same thing for that screening that we do on all our donors. So so uh, we know that we've got a public health opportunity here to try and not just give one data point, but try and put it in a context and then start that journey to doing something about it. Find that provider, start taking some ownership of the, the wonderful years you have ahead. Now, it's in our self-interest. We want every donor to live as long as possible and give as many units as possible during that span. So, you know, it's enlightened self-interest on our part, but really it's a way of giving back to our donors, uh, all, all kidding aside. It's a way to say, you know, they're taking their time. And if we discover some, uh, a male in particular, but a female is also very low uh, on their anemia, very low blood counts, that's often a sign that there maybe there's a colon bleeding from a colon cancer. And we've had people we've discovered who've, who've gone on to cures um, because of early detection of their tumors. Likewise, arrhythmias, we test for pulse. And sometimes people have an, uh, an irregular pulse that's new. When it's new, it's disturbing and it needs to be evaluated. And we've had people who end up uh, days later getting cardiac bypass surgery because they found out that the reason there was arrhythmia uh, related to coronary artery disease. So we do a little mini physical. We 
want to give that information back to folks uh, so they can use it to their own good health. And we've got an amazing infrastructure. Uh, you know, we do blood draws. We have our own testing lab. We just did 72,000 hemoglobin A1C screenings uh, over the months of August, September, and October. Every donor came in. We have an amazing uh, set of data, and it's kind of scary how many of our donors have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and high levels of sugar indicating probable diabetes. We need to help those folks. They might not be going to see a doctor. As you mentioned, a lot of these are silent conditions. They do their damage in the background without uh, any attention, and by the time you discover them, it's really a big problem. So hopefully we can work uh, with you, David, and uh, figure out ways to do a better job of uh, giving back to the community and being this resource for community health. We are a resource anyway, because we provide blood for the health of the community, but we can do a lot more for the donors to help with chronic conditions that are really America's got an epidemic. I mean, uh, we use the term and people glaze over it, but we've got an epidemic of diabetes and heart disease and hypertension. These things are attackable. You know, if this were a foreign army and they own 30% of America, they'd taken over the East Coast, we'd be outraged. We'd be like, what? We got to fight this. But this is, you know, we didn't used to have 30% of our population with uh, out of control blood sugars. This is a modern problem. And we're acting like uh, there's nothing. We're acting very passively. And I hate passive. I don't think successful people, successful organizations and successful countries are passive. They attack the things that they can solve. And uh, maybe with your help, uh, we can help solve some of the, the blood pressure problems and uh, heart disease and uh, get healthier. And who doesn't want more years of productive life with their family? And what country can't use the smart people who've trained up to become physicians and plumbers and everything else? We need more of those people. With the job market, we better hope every one of them stays around to do their job because we're running out of workers. Oh, this is just great stuff, John. Unfortunately, the clock has just about won again. It, it always happens on American Indian and Alaska Native living like every other show. Listen, we're in the home stretch here. I'm going to mention two things, and uh, if it's not correct, you correct me. But, I mean, I've had people walk into my office as a physician. They've wanted to know their blood type. Uh, they haven't had any recent exposures, but they're wondering, do I have hepatitis? I mean, you, you screen for all these things, right, if they come and donate blood? Yeah, um, one of the great things is you'll learn your blood type. So uh, you're one of those eight basic flavors. It's always good to know which one you are. We don't recommend you use this as a, a screening tool. Right. Uh, if you think you've got high risk, uh, you need to talk to your physician because we're not in the business of making diagnoses. We never make a diagnosis. We point you to somebody who can confirm what we may have found. So uh, yeah, it's going to give you a sense of uh, your own health. I, I would say just generally health. We will give you information that's relevant to your health and try and give you back not only a sense of uh, accomplishment at being a healer for somebody uh, through your blood, but also uh, maybe help yourself be a healer for yourself. John, before we leave, one more time, if someone wants to connect with you, your team, website and phone number, please. Yeah, it's obi.org or it's uh, txbi.org or it's ARK bi.org um so uh and then the number is 18773408777 and uh even if you don't live in our neck of the woods and you want to talk about public health or what it means to host a blood drive we'd love to encourage you tremendous that number again 18773408777 John thank you so much for joining us thank you David for having me on and thanks for the great work you're doing through uh, your books and your show this was Dr. John Armitage speaking with us, CEO of the Oklahoma Blood Institute, also Arkansas Blood Institute and Texas Blood Institute. Hopefully you've caught a vision 
for if you haven't been a regular donor to uh, get on the phone and make a call or drop in one of those locations in your community. Thank you. If you are a regular donor, thank you for all those tribes who've been doing such great work in this field. Well, that's all for today's edition of the broadcast. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.